Welcome. I'm Michael Krasny, and I welcome you to the first of what will be an ongoing regular podcast, which I am humbled and also very gratified to be hosting. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Gray Matter. Uh, I think um, you'll find the program to be consistently high level. Uh, I had a career for over a quarter of a century as a host of uh, the NPR station KQED's Forum, uh, which was a top-rated radio program. And now I'm making this transition into the digital world with some fear and trembling, but with also some excitement. And we have an audience here this morning who will be asking questions, and I invite those questions. My guest is Robert Wachter. Bob Wachter was a guest of mine a number of times on forum, and I always found him to be not only extraordinarily enlightening when it came to anything that had to do with COVID, but he's also been good on, uh, well, digital medicine. He wrote a whole book on that subject and uh, good on patient safety and medical errors. He wrote a book on that as well. Um, he's uh, a formidable intellect, and that's why I think uh, we can consistently talk about the people that we have on who fill that bill. He's professor and chair of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And if you put stock in US News and World Report, some people don't in terms of colleges and the way they're ranked, but there's a much better job doing ranking uh, medicine departments and US News and World Report 2021 to 2022 was rated the best internal medicine uh, department in the country. So uh, I'm delighted to have him with us. He's written a great deal about hospitals and about medical care and about uh, just about every aspect of uh, patient safety that you can think of. And um, we're gonna talk with him largely about COVID. What could be more really timely than talking about that? And Bob, welcome, glad to be with you again. Thank you, Michael. It's great to have you on the air. Well, I'm on the digital air now. It's a whole different phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to get all these uh, many listeners that we had on forum to shift over to digital, uh, that would be an interesting task in itself. But uh, I'm, I'm excited about it, and I'm looking forward not only to this ongoing podcast, but of course, the beginning with, with you and talking about something that is on everybody's mind and uh, in so many hearts, too. We've gone over the million mark, and what a ghastly and sobering number that is, uh, that Rubicon to cross. I, I guess I'd like to begin, and, and I should say that uh, Robert Wachter is not a tea leaf reader. He's not a crystal ball gazer. He's a hard science guy, and uh, that's why I enjoy so much talking to him. And he has thousands of followers on Twitter and has answered questions and done uh, a absolutely stellar job answering questions that people have put to him about COVID on on. Twitter um, questions sometimes that are really out in left field, but questions that people really want answers to. And he has answers. Um, and like many of us, he doesn't have all of the answers, but he certainly has answers that I think you can rely on and depend on. And you're not going to get misinformation if you follow, as thousands do, Bob Wachter on Twitter. Um, it's scary now with uh, cases on the rise and with hospitalizations on the rise. Um, and I'm wondering. I guess in a broad way, I'd like to begin by asking you when there are a lot of people who want to know when is it going to be possible to look in the rearview mirror on this pandemic? When is it, when are we actually going to be able to say we're free of it now, or at least we've put it to rest in some fashion, uh, or is it just going to be lasting with us in perpetuity as long as the planet lasts given climate change and the like? Well, yeah, it's hard. The crystal ball is tough on this one, and a lot of predictions that we've all made, including myself, have turned out to be wrong. I can't see anything. This is, brace yourself for a depressing answer. I can't see anything in what I've learned over the past two and a quarter years that uh, would predict that this thing will be behind us at some point. I think the likeliest way it gets behind us is it just gets absorbed into the daily risks of life. You know, we, we wouldn't, if you lived through the great influenza pandemic in 1918, uh, you know, the answer would have been to that question. It's never going to be behind us. There'll always be flu around. Uh, you will have to deal with every year. We'll get a shot. Um, it kills 30 or 40,000 people a year. And we don't obsess about it. it we kind of get on with our lives. And I think that is the likeliest outcome for COVID. It, it gets behind us only insofar as other, it gets supplanted by other things that we're worried about a little bit more and we get a little bit tired of it. And we come up with some better scientific solutions, either 
better vaccines or better uh, better antiviral treatments. But I don't think it goes away, certainly not in the foreseeable future and maybe forever. Well, we need a whole new generation of vaccines, don't we? I mean, provided that the funding is there and that the research can progress. Well, we'll need better vaccines. It, kind of take a step back. The vaccines that we have are miraculous. They are uh, sort of beyond my wildest dreams that we would have come up in 10 months with with this new technology uh, that people have been working on it for a couple of decades, but had never been used for vaccines. We'd come up with with vaccines that were so remarkably effective and have saved millions of lives around the world. And when my wife got COVID two weeks ago, it didn't cross my mind that she was going to die of it. And that would not have been true in the pre-vaccine era. So we should be very, very thankful for these vaccines. And they've held up very well in terms of preventing severe infection and preventing death. What they are not doing nearly as well as they used to and it's not the vaccines have changed at all, it's the virus has gotten smarter, is providing prolonged protection against infection. And so the latest booster, when we talk about whether you should get your second uh, booster or your fourth shot, the numbers get confusing, the latest booster seems to offer good but not great protection against getting infected, and it lasts in that regard for about two months. So whereas we were used to it lasting six months or eight months or 10 months, it still provides better protection against getting very sick, but its protection against all infections has, has, has withered. And that's because the virus has gotten smarter. It, the virus has, is not only with each variant gotten more and more infectious, and that's why everybody you know seemingly seems to have it these days, uh, but it has also managed to at least partly evade the immune system. So we're going to be in search for new versions of the vaccine that if you get a yearly shot, maybe along with your flu shot, will protect you for a year. Um, or maybe you get one every six months. We're also going to be on the lookout for new and better antivirals. So if you do get COVID, you take a pill right away. It has no side effects and it markedly decreases the length of time that you're infectious and, and the risk that you'll get very, very sick. So I think it's important to highlight that we've made a tremendous amount of progress. Uh, thank goodness for the vaccines. Thank goodness for Paxlovid that we have. It is the reason that the number of cases is, is very, very high now, but the number of hospitalizations and deaths is going up, but not as, is nowhere near as high as it would have been. But we need to do better with both of those. But as you say, the virus is very smart. I mean, the stealth of it and the way that it can sort of defy antibodies and move in directions that we never could have predicted uh, in terms of their trajectory tells us volumes about uh, what we're combating here, doesn't it? It does. And it, it's sort of a play within a play. The, the more we allow the virus to spread... Uh, the more opportunities it has to, with each each replication, to mutate. And so the reason that we want to try to decrease the amount of spread is not just to have fewer people get sick and whatever the consequences of that are in terms of the acute infection and then also the potential for long COVID, which we, I'm sure we'll get into. But each each replication is an opportunity for mischief, is an opportunity for the to, for the virus to get a little bit better at its job. And we have seen... Uh, at this point, it is, you know, there's, there's easy pattern recognition, you know, there was the original virus and there was, you know, then there was Delta, which was, you know, which was quite nasty. And then people said, oh, this is about a ba as bad as it can get. And then there was Omicron, which was maybe a little bit less severe, but much, much more infectious. And then we said, all right, that's about as bad as it can get. And since Omicron in December and January, there have been three or four versions of Omicron, each one a little bit better at its job of infecting people and a little bit better at its job of evading uh, immunity than the one before it. So this is the, the problem. We need to try to decrease the amount of replication to give it fewer chances to mutate and get smarter. Um, and But the, the, uh, the circularity here <clears throat> is that the uh, the new vaccine you might be working on is based on what we saw in December and January as people are trying to come up with with rejiggered vaccines. They're trying to rejigger them around the Omicron variant, December, January version. It might be that by the time these vaccines get out and have been tested and are ready for prime time and somebody's ready to put one in your shoulder, the new variant uh, isn't isn't uh, uh, killed very well by that particular vaccine. 
And so I'll have to start all over again. This all reminds me of painting Golden Gate Bridge. You know, just the minute you think you're done, you've got to start all over again. And so there is a chasing our tail aspect to this. We're also doing worse here in the United States in terms of wealthy countries than anywhere else. And what is that attributable to other than the fact that a lot of people don't trust the fact that the vaccines uh, aren't going to put something in their head ruled by Bill Gates or I don't know, you know, whatever the latest conspiracy theory is. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've proven that we're pretty bad at pandemics as a country um, because a lot of the response to pandemics is do you trust the authorities who are telling you that you should do something? Do you agree when they tell you you must do something? Or does that hit some libertarian button in you that says, oh, I don't, you know, who made you the boss of me? And maybe, you know, I don't believe you or this is a conspiracy. And of course, everybody can choose their own adventure in terms of where they get their news. And so that's really a very, very bad set of preconditions for for fighting a virus. And one of the ways we know that is for those of us in the Bay Area, where there's been relatively little libertarian pushback against, you know, who are you to say I need to wear a mask? Who are you to say I need this vaccine? Relatively less conspiracy theories than in other parts of the country. The uh, number of deaths that we've had from, uh, from COVID is about a quarter or so of the national average. So if the entire country had mirrored the Bay Area's performance, there'd be about seven or 800,000 people alive today uh, of the million who have died. So it was possible in the United States, but unfortunately, it, it sort of it's it hit at this remarkable socio-political moment where if you are watching certain news channels, if you get your information from certain podcasts, uh, you you have come to believe that you know that the authorities, expertise, science is not to be trusted. And that's really a bad way to go into a pandemic. And I think we've proven that. Well, it has struck me on a number of occasions that uh, I remember as a kid going, getting a salt vaccine and a vaccine against polio. Public schools, in fact, were open for that purpose. People were compliant. People were, you could say they were docile or whatever, but they certainly didn't uh, say that there was a principle by which they should not get the salt vaccine or the polio vaccine. And the reality is that it gets right into misinformation and what has been wrought by the internet and by uh, other sources that perhaps are not as valuable or as valid as they should be. In fact, I'm wondering what your response is to all of the enmity. This is nationwide. This is, I mean, we can speak about the Bay Area being anomalous in many ways, but it's all over the country. But somebody like Dr. Fauci, I mean, he's made mistakes, but the fact of the matter is that he needs security now because people think somehow he had something to do with Wuhan and with the whole release of, the, and all this is information misinformation. Yeah, it's it's incredibly uh, sad and, and and bothersome. You know, I know Tony moderately well. He's brilliant. He's uh, he's been a remarkable public servant his entire life. He could have done a thousand different things. He's as good as it gets in the world of medical science. He's chosen to be a federal employee his entire life to make a difference, first in HIV and now in doing what he's doing. And yeah, if you look back, he's said some things that have turned out to be wrong because the science has changed, the virus has changed, you know, the the set of conditions has changed. Uh, And the fact that he and his family need protection is just staggeringly sad and unbelievably dangerous because why would somebody want a job like that? You're out there trying to do the right thing, trying to promote science, and this is what happens to you. It's Excuse really me, Bob, is this good. also true about many public health officers now? They yeah. have the same no, kind I've, of exigencies? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you've heard this from the public health officers. And I, again, in the Bay Area, I think we've been a little bit better off. There's certainly been pushback. I mean, there's always going to be pushback. This is an incredibly hard issue. You're your, the, the issues like the schools and, 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 and masking and all that are always, it could be controversy in part because the science is uncertain. And in part, you're having to make really tough judgment calls about what is the trade-off between safety and the economy and, and the use of public health tools to do mandates and tell people that they must do something that they may or may not want to do. And, and uh, individual people have different individual risks and family risks and all that. So this was always gonna be hard, but it didn't have to be this hard. And when the polio vaccine came out and you needed a news source to try to figure out, is this a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? 
you know, you turn on the TV and you had three news channels and you could hear from one of three anchors who would tell you, you know, that version of the truth. You could pick up, you know, several newspapers. There were this multiplicity of sources of information, including, you know, basically no barrier to entry of anyone to spew misinformation is, uh, you know, it, 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 it creates a set of conditions that are very, very different than anything the world has ever experienced before. And in the United States, I think we're particularly susceptible to this because we're so polarized that if science and expertise says X, there's a, there's a camp that says it must be Y uh, uh, for partisan gain and sometimes for economic gain. So it puts us in a very, very bad condition. I think that's what we've seen. I, again, in the Bay Area, not quite so much, but even for friends of mine who are practicing medicine in other parts of the country, they tell me that one of the real scourges of their practice is they spend a lot of time arguing with their patients about vaccinations, about ivermectin, about different, you know, patients coming in and saying, I, you need to give me this. And the doctor saying, there's no evidence that that's a good thing to do. And you end up with this confrontational relationship between, between physicians and patients, which is incredibly destructive. Well, you've gone on record now just recently saying uh, that patients should wear masks indoors. And there are those who would probably take issue with you on that. Uh, why do you come to that? Or what made you come to that conclusion? Well, I try not to say to people, you must do things. I tell them what I'm doing and tell them why. And um, my own belief is that um, uh, we need to calibrate our response to the amount of virus in the community. I, I think it is a rational thing at this point to continue to try not to get COVID. And you might say, well, I already have it. I think it's rational to try not to get it again. And the reasons are a couple. One is, uh, first of all, it's a pretty bad disease and you feel pretty crummy. And this idea that it's, quote, like a cold is mostly a canard uh, to try to downplay it. It's, you know, the people I know who've had it, uh, for most of them, it was not like a cold. It was worse than that. And for some, and of course, now a million people, they've died of it. So it's a... Uh, it's a bad disease. But the, the, the thing that worries me the most at this point is long COVID. I haven't gotten COVID yet, I don't think. Uh, I'd like not to, but not because I'm afraid I'm going to be hospitalized or that I'll die from it. It really is the more information we learn about the long-term effects of this, the scarier it is. And so I think it's reasonable to try to not get it. And that means you've got to calibrate your response when there's relatively little virus in the community and you're fully vaccinated and boosted, I think it's reasonable not to wear a mask in crowded indoor settings. But when the level of virus goes up to the point where if you're standing in a, you know, if you're in a restaurant with 50 people or you get an airplane with 100 people on it, I can almost guarantee to you today that there's someone in that crowd who has COVID. I think in that setting, uh, wearing a mask is, is prudent. And as I've said before, you know, it's not chemotherapy. We've, 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 we've turned masks into this, this partisan symbol, but you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to wear a mask for a few hours on an airplane, or if I go to the Safeway later to shop. My main issue in terms of my decision-making about wearing a mask is how likely is it that the person standing next to me in line at the Safeway has COVID? And the answer in San Francisco today is about a one in 20 chance that they do, which just seems pretty high. And I don't need to talk to anybody at the Safeway. And so to me, wearing a mask for, for 45 minutes just seems like a relatively small price to pay to decrease the probability I'm going to get this disease. I found quite enlightening an article you did in the Washington Post about going to Florida and you wanted to go to a party there and uh, you had to kind of calculate the risks. Uh, but again, you were looking at the data. I mean, it, it boils down to sort of the calculus of risk versus uh, the pleasure you were meeting with some old pals and turned out to be worth the, the, the risk, but you have to always evaluate those risks. But now you've got also other risks, uh, even mild COVID, uh, according to some recent data in a UK study, can lead to um, adverse brain damage. And you mentioned long COVID, and long COVID is also a danger that is really very frightening and that we need to be apprehensive about. And so we're talking about risks in fact, let's talk about long COVID because I know there are a lot of people who find it enigmatic and they don't know what to make of it. Uh, and, and it's mysterious, as mysterious as all this asymptomatic transmission of COVID. Um, these are like enigmas that we, um, we hope science can somehow help uh, 
us understand better, but we are faced with some tremendous obstacles. Long COVID now has gone down somewhat, has it? It was at one point, they were talking about 10 to 30%. I think that's still probably the best number. I, 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 there, are, there are enigmas about long COVID that relate to its, our medical word is pathophysiology, meaning what is going on. We still don't exactly understand what is going on. Is it, is there still a small amount of virus in your body that's causing mischief? Is it your immune system that went into overdrive to fight the virus when you had it and is not settled down appropriately over time? Is it, is it something about uh, your clotting system that's changed? All those are theories that are being researched. And so whenever we don't understand something, there's a tendency sometimes to poo-poo it. And, and, but, but the parts of long COVID that we're becoming a little bit more secure about, first of all, it's very real. There's, there's no longer any ambiguity that a decent percentage of people that have an acute case of COVID, even, some, even a mild case, will continue to have symptoms that are troubling more than two or three months later. That part is unambiguous. The studies on that are quite clear. The percentage, I think the best numbers from what I've seen are the ones you cite, 10 to 30% of people, which of course is an enormous number of people. The CDC study a week or two ago said 60% of the country has had, uh, has had COVID. And so if you talk about 20% of 60% of the United States that is now continuing to have long-term symptoms, talking about a huge burden on the population, a lot of disability. That number is a little bit lower, a little bit higher in women than men, a little bit higher if your case was, your original case was a bad case, but it's certainly not zero if you had a very mild initial case um, and probably halved if you're fully vaccinated. So when I think about my own calculus about, you know, how hard I'm going to try not to get COVID, I'm using a number of, because I'm fully vaccinated and boosted, uh, of about a 5% chance that if I get COVID, that I will continue to feel crummy in one way or the other, brain fog, fatigue, something, uh, three, four, five months from now. There's another new twist on the long COVID theme, which is potentially even scarier, uh, which is a number of studies have come out in the last two months looking at the one-year outcome of people who have had COVID, comparing them to a similar population of people who have not. And those studies have shown increased incidence of heart attacks, of strokes, of diabetes, and of brain shrinkage. Uh, will that pan out to be true? We'll have to see is, you know, obviously their study is not of Omicron because they're, they've, these are people who have been followed for a year. Omicron didn't exist a year ago. Uh, is the risk that high if you've been vaccinated? All these are unknowns. We're talking about a one-year risk. But at least at this moment, I'm going to go to the bank and say, for all I know, based on the best science, those are risks as well. So when I think of long COVID, I think about it as two very different threads. One is continued symptoms, and the other is risks of bad things that, you know, that are akin in some ways to the risk of smoking or the risk of high blood pressure in terms of elevated risk of a stroke or a heart attack. We may find that, you know, five years from now, we look back and we say that was the biggest impact of COVID, that all uh, there's excess disability and mortality and morbidity because of the impacts of COVID. So in weighing how, how careful you're going to be to avoid this, I think many people are saying, you know, I'm over it because I'm tired of it, completely understandable. I'm vaccinated, so I'm not worried about dying anymore. That's actually a reasonable way of interpreting the, the data and the risk. But I don't think you can wish away this long COVID stuff. I think it's still, in my mind, is the main reason that I think it's prudent to still try to be careful when you can. It's pretty incontrovertible, though, isn't it, that there's a higher risk for um, cardiovascular disease with long COVID? I wouldn't call it incontrovertible. These are studies that had looked at large populations of patients uh, who had COVID and then uh, seeing whether they came back to the hospital with heart attacks and then a comparable group of patients that didn't have COVID and seeing what happens. So you're always worried in studies like that. Is there something different about the group of people that had COVID that also put them at elevated risk of a heart attack or put them in contact with the healthcare system so they got tested. Those are things in epidemiology known as confounders, meaning they're associated with COVID, but maybe it's not that COVID caused it. They're, you know, true, true, and maybe unrelated. So it, I don't think it's ironclad, but all of the studies looking at long-term risks, 
And again, uh, maybe because the virus has changed, getting infected with Omicron is a different risk than the, what the studies looked at, which is getting infected with a prior variant. So I wouldn't say I'm 100% sure that those risks are real, but I'm much more sure than not. And I think that it's prudent to assume that those risks are real and bake it into your uh, your risk assessment as you decide what to do. I mean, this is part of the reason that people are kind of going a little crazy here is as I as I highlighted in that article in the Washington Post, in deciding whether to go inside at a party and take your mask off and eat and drink, you've got to multiply your own personal risk, age and comorbidities, how much COVID there is in the environment uh, based on you know not only where you are, but where all the people have come from, your vaccination status, their vaccination status, the amount of ventilation in the room and about 20 other factors. There's no normal human being that wants to do that. So I have, a, I have a fair number of people who follow me on Twitter who said, I'm just tired of this. Tell me what you're doing and that's what I'll do. I don't think that's unreasonable because I sort of think about this for a living. It's very, very hard for people to do all this math and figure it out. Well, you've been uh, extraordinarily helpful to many people who have asked questions of you. And we're going to go to some questions from the people who are listening to us now who are looking for more enlightenment from you. I'm just wondering, though, about authorities and uh who people can trust and all of those kinds of questions, because there seems to be um, a kind of blurring of authority. Uh, there has been at least characteristically, and I wonder how much it's still true between the White House and the CDC and the FDA. Uh, can you outline your own response to that, what I call blurring of authority? Yeah, I mean, it's a very tricky set of, you know, just in the kind of bureaucratic world. I, I mean, I, Ashish Jha, who is now the White House coordinator, is an old friend and trained at UCSF and is brilliant and absolutely, absolutely trustworthy. And his job is to sort of weave together what the science says from the CDC, what the science says from the FDA, what the White House is thinking, um, and trying to educate the public about it. And I completely uh trust ashish and the people in the cdc are really good and the people in the fda are really good but you're talking about science that changes all the time it's you know there's a good chance that what you said a month or two ago is no longer right because the variant is different um and then you're trying if you think about what the cdc has to do people say well they should put out guidance about what to do you know should you wear a mask or not well, should you wear a mask or not kind of depends a lot on all those things I just said. So your own personal risk, your own personal risk tolerance. Um, you know, do you live with little kids who are not vaccinated? Do you live with very elderly people who are at high risk or immunosuppressed people? And it's almost impossible for the CDC to come out with a one size fits all uh, set of risks. And, and, and sometimes when they come out with something and they say, all right, we're going to dial down the assessment of whether you need to wear a mask because your hospital is not hospitals in your region aren't overwhelmed they're sort of doing that through a public health lens you know that 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 the cost and the pushback against mandates is so high that we don't think you need a mandate unless your health system is being overwhelmed but whether the health system is being overwhelmed is really irrelevant to the individual person's decision making that question really is much more how much COVID is there in your environment and really the Safeway question is how you know what's the likelihood the person next to me in line has uh, has COVID. So it's a long way of saying these folks have very hard jobs. I know many of them, they have a lot of integrity. They're doing the best they can, but this is a moving target. And the amount of both, not only misinformation, but the fact that if you said something to, you know, two months ago, which was right at the time and now is wrong, it will be held against you and, and, and held up as evidence of, see, you can't trust this person. So Fauci, of course, you know, early on, where we didn't know the value of masks, you know, said didn't recommend masks. That became this this meme for the next two years about why Fauci can't be trusted. It's it's a very unfair environment and one that's very difficult to uh, to sort of create a, a, an environment of trust that people need to have. I generally trust what the White House and the CDC and the FDA are doing, but I look at it through skeptical eyes as well. And when they, sometimes they do something that I disagree with and I'm perfectly comfortable saying that. Well, what are you comfortable saying about uh, misinformation that's coming from physicians? I know, for example, that um, there's been an attempt to make them um, responsible uh, if they're disseminating misinformation to uh, actually, I mean, I'm, not, I'm talking about something beyond even moral responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an important thing to do is just a very, uh, a, a, 
important article written by, I, I used to be chair of something called the American Board of Internal Medicine, which is the certifying agency for internal medicine doctors. When you hear your doctor's board certified, that's what it means. And it means the profession has decided here's a bar above which this you know, this person has the the expertise and professionalism to be certified as an internist or a surgeon or a psychiatrist or whatever. The 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 heads of that organization just put out an editorial basically saying that uh, putting out misinformation is not consistent with being a board certified physician. And they have committed to pulling people's board certification uh, if they do. Now, what does that mean exactly? I think it means if you're putting out information on the internet that says vaccines don't work uh, or masks don't work, uh, and it's clearly wrong. I mean, there there is right and wrong in medicine. The science is clear that that's wrong, that that then becomes potential grounds at least to lose your board certification and or your license. The problem, of course, is there's a huge part of medicine and science that's subject to debate, that you know reasonable people could look at the evidence and have a reasonable debate about it. I might disagree. That can't be grounds to lose your, your license or to lose your board certification. So, so the devil will be in the details here. How do you draw those lines? But I do think it's important for these organizations to say that for a licensed physician to be going out there and spewing misinformation that ultimately is killing people is really a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. If people listen to misinformation from a physician and decide not to get vaccinated, that is putting people in a position where they are much more likely to die uh, than, than if they vaccinated themselves as they should have. And so there should be consequences. What about consequences for those who are simply putting out misinformation who don't have medical degrees? I mean, what can be done? You've studied really the effects of the internet and you have gone into great lengths about digital medicine and so forth. Uh, we, we keep talking about defending the First Amendment, defending free speech, uh, that it's sacred and that it's uh, inviolable and all of those kinds of things. And yet at the same time, there are people who are believed. Um, the, the classic case, of course, comes to mind is Joe Rogan, fellow podcaster now, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. you know, giving out information that Aaron Douglas uh, took to be the gospel. Um, no consequences. This is the, essentially the consequences that we have by allowing the Internet to be as free as it is. Yeah, I wouldn't call myself an expert on this. I think it's, you know, it, it, it's obviously an incredibly tricky time that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> you know, free speech is in some ways the bedrock of our society. It's going to be very, very difficult to figure out how to draw the line. One, one would hope that the market would do it and that, you know, the boycott against Rogan is maybe an indication that there, is, there are lines where if you go past them, uh, you know, the market sort of kicks in and, 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 and people no longer be, want to be associated with you. But clearly, that is not enough to prevent misinformation. And there seems to be a market for it. It seems to draw eyeballs and draw listeners. And so I wish I knew, you know, it's one thing to, to, to deal with a credentialed expert and where that credential is valuable to that expert. And the expert then is saying things that, that are, are going to hurt and, and kill people. It's another for a lay person to use this megaphone now, obviously, we limit free speech. You know, the classic is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, so there, there are limits on free speech, but uh, you, you'll need to bring on some legal scholars to figure out how to deal with that in the internet writ large, because I, I find this to be an extraordinarily difficult problem. And, you know, the, the nature of this pandemic and future pandemics and future threats, whether it's whether it's the infectious threat or a bioterrorism bio threat or climate change, is clearly altered by the fact that everybody has a megaphone. And I, I have no idea what to do about that. Well, I'll give you another maybe insoluble problem because, <laughs> well, you have a great deal of wisdom and knowledge and uh, you, actually you were a political science major, also a mascot uh, at your uh, uh, college pen uh, or your alma mater, I should say. And uh, I'm thinking about just the, the problem we're facing now is a, a, a changing message from the White House back to authority and blurring authority, um, but also uh, by a changing message, I mean people being having more agency for their own decisions and all of that sort of thing, um, which is fine up to an extent, but it shifts sort of the ground underneath us. I'm also thinking about the fact that there's a lot of money that wants to be put into research that needs to be put into research. And yet at the same time, we're facing a lot of money that's needed to, for example, send armaments to Ukraine. 
uh, and maybe to save democracy. Uh, you get into that conundrum that really many people don't have any answers for, because obviously it's a question of priorities or whatever. Do you have a case that you want to make here? Well, there, I think there's an easy case on the money for the pandemic. I mean, it, it just strikes me that the only way the federal government could say we don't want to spend 10 or 20 or 30 more billion dollars on uh, pandemic science and making available vaccines, funding vaccine research, antiviral research, making these tools available to people. The only way you can say that is you really do believe this thing is over and 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 this is not posing an ongoing threat. I can't see any way that you look at the current situation and come to that conclusion. So uh, it, it and we've seen not only the medical and 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 mortality consequences of not dealing with this pandemic effectively, but we've seen the economic consequences of it as well. And so not only does it strike me as an extraordinarily foolish decision not to continue to invest in pandemic, preparedness, um, uh, not for the next pandemic necessarily, just for this current one, which is not going away. Uh, but it's an economically foolhardy decision because ultimately, you know, you can say we're over it and we need to get back to normal. But if your entire workforce is out sick, uh, you're not getting back to normal anytime soon. If people are, you know, now afraid of eating indoors or doing or going to stores, you know, that has a huge economic consequence. So to me, not only is it the right thing to do medically to continue to invest, but there's a, a, a massive return on investment. And the problem is we have this disconnect now where a lot of people quite understandably are just saying, I want to get on with my life. That's a reasonable thing to want and to hope for and to think, but there's no way to look at the current stage of the pandemic and say that you know we're done with this thing uh, and therefore we no longer need to invest in science. I mean, the vaccines have saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives if they're not working as well anymore because the virus has gotten smarter. The idea that we're gonna say, we're not gonna invest in further vaccines because we feel like we've put all the money in we can is just a stupid decision. So I'm hoping that, uh, that people will realize that in Washington, the consequences of getting that wrong seem very high to me. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with Dr. Robert Wachter, who is Chief of Medicine and Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. We're going to go to questions here. We've got lots of questions for you, Bob. Uh, first question comes from uh, Hasmuk in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, who says, if opting to a mask, will a cloth mask uh, do it? Or if wearing one needs to invest or should invest in N95 instead? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I just bought some N95s on Amazon, I think 20 of them for, 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 for 20 bucks. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's cheaper than a latte. So it's not like a massive investment. Um, there's no question that the N95 works substantially better than a surgical mask, which works substantially better than a cloth mask. And so a cloth mask is only slightly better than nothing, but only slightly. So this virus is so infectious, if you're counting on a cloth mask to protect you, you're making a bad decision. I, When I'm wearing a mask, I'm wearing an, a KN95 usually. It feels like if you're wearing a mask, it's because you're worried that you're going to come in contact with the virus. Why not wear the best possible mask? Now, there's a mask I wear in the hospital that's, that's a fancy hospital-fitted uh, N95 that's you know, very tight, somewhat uncomfortable, and provides marginally increased protection compared to a KN95. But in my day, and that's what I wear when I'm walking into the room of a patient I know has COVID. But when I go to the Safeway later, uh, I'm wearing a KN95 that it costs about a buck a piece. And that's what I think you should do. I thank uh, the caller for that. And I'm gonna go to another caller, another participant, uh, Ayak, who's joining us from Hanover, Germany this morning. Uh, when can we expect an effective targeted drug to treat patients suffering from COVID, he wants to know. And uh, let me add something to that. I've been reading about nasal sprays all along here, two to three years off or whatever, but that looks like for some, the way we should be going. Well, there are two different things, Michael. One, one is the nasal things that we're talking about mostly are nasal vaccines. They are, they are so we almost have to kind of divide the world into things that prevent you from getting COVID, or if you get it, you get a milder case, which is largely vaccines. Um, and we, the vaccines we have available now are shots in your arm. It would be nice, certainly sort of, a lot of people don't like needles, but also if you had a nasal vaccine, 
it might create a level of immunity in your nose and mouth that would 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 cut off the virus's ability to burrow into your cells where it does that in your nose and mouth. And so there's a lot of active effort to try to figure out, is there a nasal vaccine that will prevent infections maybe better than the shots that we get, but probably a year or two away. It's an important area for research. I, I think the first part of the question was, when will there be treatments for COVID? Well, there are. The main one is a drug called Paxlovid. It's a drug uh, uh, by Pfizer. You take it for five days. It's authorized for people um, at higher risk, either by age or by medical comorbidities. And and um, in the clinical trials, it decreased the chances of you getting sick enough to need to go to the hospital by 90%. And so taking a drug twice a day for five days to lower the probability of severe case by 90%, is a pretty good deal. Um, it's a little bit of a tricky drug in that there's a fair number of drug interactions. So you've got to be uh, careful about that and talk to your doctor, your pharmacist. The thing about Paxlovid that's a little bit funky that we'll put this in on, on the very long list of things that were surprising and we didn't understand. Um, we're seeing a phenomenon in some people, including my wife who has COVID right now, of what's known as Paxlovid rebound, meaning she took it and felt almost the next day felt much, much better. At the end of, a, it took it for five days. At the end of seven or eight days, she's tested negative, was feeling much better. And a couple of days later, she developed some congestion and now her test had turned positive again. We don't really understand what's going on, whether the Paxlovid suppressed her virus uh, uh, very well, but now there was still enough virus to come back. These rebound cases tend to be quite mild. I don't know of anyone yet who's gone to the hospital, but you are infectious when you do rebound. We've got to study this very quickly. Maybe that five-day course should be a seven or a 10-day course. We don't know that yet. My biggest worry is people will see this and say, I don't want to take that drug. And I think that's not the right call right now. If I got COVID today, I would take this drug because what's incontrovertible is that it lowered the chance of getting very sick by 90%. But we've got to understand this better. Well, you're in the, under the same roof as your wife. She's lucky to have a physician there uh, to take care of her. But what do you do to protect yourself or to essentially not have it transmitted to you. Yeah, I, it's an important point about that. People think a household member has gotten it and maybe I was hanging out with them for the whole day or two days, you know, sleeping in the same bed before it's it, the, the horse is out of the barn, I've got it. That's wrong. The household attack rate for Omicron, meaning if someone in your household has it, what are the chances you're going to get it? It's about 40%. So when my wife turned positive, I thought I had an almost even 50-50 chance of getting it, but as soon as she turned positive, we went into strict isolation from each other. So we're in separate rooms with the door closed when we're in anywhere, on the, even on the same floor. I have a two-floor house, even the same floor. We're both wearing N95s, sort of like a prisoner. I bring her meals up to her and put it on a little stand outside her room and knock on the door and, and go downstairs. We have one TV room in the house. She's in there now watching when she leaves. She'll keep the doors and windows open for about an hour before I go in. Uh, we're just super careful. And at least so far, I have dodged the bullet. I, I have not gotten COVID, despite the fact we spent a full day together and have been in the same house for the last two weeks. Some with wry humor would say you're comporting yourself like a lot of long married people, but I won't go into that. I'll go yeah. instead to another person who'd like to join us from Kansas, actually from Olathe, Kansas. That's Michael Andreas, who wants to know, took some time for the WHO and CDC to admit that SARS-CoV-2 can spread via aerosols in poorly ventilated indoor spaces. Yet this message is not being widely promoted. Can we change this? We need to use all the tools to fight COVID-19 that we can. Thank you for that, Michael. Dr. Walker. Yeah, I, I think in the beginning, we didn't really know how this thing spread. And the obvious analogy was the flu. So we thought that it would be exactly like that. And we thought that the main mechanism of spread was what's known as droplets, which basically is in talking or singing or shouting. There's a little spittle that comes out and strikes you in the nose or the mouth. And that's how you get it. We now clearly know that the major, most of the spread is aerosol. And when you think about aerosol, think about cigarette smoke, that it's it's lingering in the air. It can linger for a little while. And again, with each variant, it's gotten better at doing that, better infecting people. What that has done is raise the importance of wearing a better mask. So if it was, if it was just by droplets, then you know a cloth mask would be fine because it's gonna block a big droplet. 
But if it's aerosol, if it's if it's microscopic, then you could see how you're wearing a cloth mask that's pretty porous and it doesn't have any problem getting through that, getting to your, getting to your mouth or nose. Whereas a N95 is specially engineered to make that really, really hard. It also points out the importance of ventilation. It's why being outdoors is massively safer than being indoors. I'm still perfectly comfortable eating outside with someone and, or, or hanging out with people not wearing a mask outside, uh, whereas I'm not comfortable doing that inside. So it's why, you know, when Katie leaves, you know, leaves a room, we open the windows and the door and ventilate the room. And it's why when I walk into an empty elevator at work, I don't care that it's empty, I'm still wearing my N95. So we understand that very well. I think the message is mostly out there, but but I think because in the early days we didn't understand that, it's taken a while for people to get it. I've been wearing N95s uh, in airports, going through TSAs and everything, but I've also been wearing a mask on the airlines, even though the ventilation on the airlines is generally pretty good, isn't it? It's good, but I think you're making the right decision. I mean, it, 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 people talk about the, the ventilation and the filters in the airlines and how good they are. They definitely are good, and you're substantially safer sitting in an airline seat than you would be sitting around 150 other people in some other aluminum tube that had no ventilation. There's no question about that. But uh, there's clearly have been uh, you know, many, many document cases of spread on, on airplanes. Um, given the amount of COVID around now, I always kind of fantasize, what if as you walked on, the flight attendant had a, had a sign that said, I can guarantee to you there is at least one person on this plane who has COVID and is infectious. Would you wear a mask? Well, the fact that they're not holding up that sign does not mean that is not true. It, it, given the amount of COVID that there is now, I can guarantee to you that in a crowd of 150, there is someone on that plane that has COVID. Can't tell you that that person's sitting within a few rows of you, but it's certainly possible. And to me, that's not even a close call that you should wear uh, an N95 on an airplane or in a bus or in a subway. And the fact that the other people may not be is more reason for you to that to wear it because it's possible the person sitting next to you has COVID. And the fact that there's better, better ventilation than other other uh, uh, closed spaces is lowers the probability a fair amount, but certainly nowhere near zero. Here's Dennis Champion Walker from Mansfield in the United Kingdom, who says, you said, he's addressing you, Bob Walker, we won't get rid of COVID. Uh, for people who are extremely vulnerable to the virus like me, I have a kidney transplant. What do you think it will be? Uh, when do you think it'll be safe to return to normal life and not worry about the virus? I, I'm going to give a depressing answer. I, I think if by which, by the term, will it be safe? You mean there is no risk of you getting COVID? The answer may be never. Uh, if the if the question is, are there ways that you can keep yourself sufficiently safe to feel okay about going out in the real world. You know, the fact that someone has a kidney transplant, they're on immunosuppressives, they're already at increased risk of infection. So they're used to dealing with that. Uh, I think there are tools now that make it safe. When I hear about someone who's had a transplant, who says, I'm, I just don't go out of the house, that saddens me because I think you can do that safely. But what it involves is, you know, at least four shots of vaccine. It involves taking the monoclonal antibody called Evusheld. It involves wearing a good mask in any closed indoor space. It involves trying to hang out with people that are fully vaccinated. It involves trying to make sure there's good ventilation in the places you're in. And it involves, if you do get sick, immediately getting on this drug Paxlovid or other treatments that lower the probability of a bad outcome. That's a lot to think about. But I think those are the kinds of steps that for someone who's immunosuppressed, that they have available to them. And none of those other than ventilation were available a year or two ago. So the level of caution that was appropriate a year or two ago, I don't think you need to be quite that careful. But if the answer is, when will I get to a point in life where I never have to think about the possibility of COVID? I think the answer is going to be never. I wonder, uh, before we go to some of the questions that are coming in, uh, I'd like to go to as many as we can, but if you could say something about incidental COVID. I mean, there's COVID, uh, those who go into a hospital, uh, uh, for versus with, I guess, is the way it's uh, the binary that's often uh, presented. There's really very little spread of COVID in the hospital. You know, we're, I mean, just thinking about UCSF, we're extraordinarily careful. We've all been fully vaccinated. We're all wearing masks. Uh, the patients have all been tested for COVID when they come in. So I would not worry as a patient about getting COVID when you're in the hospital. What When we talk about for or uh, 
hospitalized for COVID versus with COVID. What I think people are referring to is you might say, well, the hospital has a lot of COVID in it. Look how bad COVID is. It's, it's putting, you know, all these people in the hospital. It turns out that, that probably at least our latest numbers, 60% of the people who are in the hospital and test positive for COVID are there for COVID, meaning COVID is what made them sick. And 40% are there because they're, they're, they're with COVID, meaning that they're there for a heart attack or they're there for, they broke their leg uh, uh, or they're there for the gallbladder surgery and we test them and they test positive for COVID. Why? Because there's a lot of COVID around. And, and now there's a lot of subtlety there because you know, I've already just told you that COVID may actually increase the risk of a heart attack. Or someone comes in and they fell it's possible they fell because they had COVID and it made them a little bit weaker than they normally would have been. So there's some subtlety around there, but it's clear that some of the people who are hospitalized and test positive for COVID, COVID is not the reason they're in the hospital. The problem is that some people who have tried to minimize COVID, you know, there, there, there's a big camp of, you know, we're overreacting and we're, we should be over this and people like me are fear mongers and all that kind of stuff. We'll use that as yet another bit of innocence, you know, they, a, a bit of evidence. We look at all these people in the hospital. Yeah, but a lot of them are there incidentally with COVID. And the answer is, yeah, there are some that are that, but there are still a fair number of people that are there because they're sick from COVID. I'm going to go right to another question from Eric Antonio, who's with us from Washington, D.C. He wants to know, as COVID becomes endemic, is UCSF health monitoring for viral recombinants uh, or is the focus strictly on viral detection and lineage determination via spike. Thank you. Well, we're, we're monitoring, you know, the, the, the clinical part of us is just testing everybody when they come in and, and, and also testing people when they come in for a procedure. Uh, and I, I actually use that number quite a bit in my own thinking. So if you came in tomorrow and you needed a hernia repaired or your gallbladder taken out or a colonoscopy, we would test you for COVID beforehand. And that number, I think, is probably the best approximation of what are the chances that someone who is in the Bay Area and feels well actually has COVID. That number has been as low as 0.2%, one in 500 during real lulls in the pandemic. Today, it's 5%. So these are asymptomatic people who have no symptoms of COVID, and one, of 20, one out of 20 of them are testing positive. That's why I say if you get in an airplane with 150 people, I can guarantee to you that one person, at least one person, has COVID. We, the, the kind of research part of UCSF is at the forefront of looking for variants and new genetic patterns and looking at for new medicines that might treat them and prevent it. Uh, you know, there's a ton of work going on to try to better understand this virus. But in terms of day-to-day, -day, you know, the way we do our business as a healthcare organization, we're mostly using a PCR-based test to detect low levels of COVID in everybody in the hospital, which helps us figure out how to organize ourselves. I'd say the biggest problem today, which is different than any time of the pandemic, our hospital is not overwhelmed with COVID. There are about 20 COVID patients in the hospital today. It's a 700 bed hospital, so it's not overwhelming by any means. Uh, just by comparison in January at the height of the Omicron surge, it was 150. But 15% of our medical residents are out with COVID right now. So we have, and, and, and comparable percentages of nurses, for example. So we have very big staffing challenges, as does every hospital and healthcare system in the country. Now, those residents did not get their COVID in the hospital. They got their COVID because they're regular human beings who go out to dinner with each other and are now in an environment where there's a lot of COVID. So the stress on the healthcare system now is much more about workforce than it is about the amount of COVID in the hospital. That's good news in a way because with this much COVID a year ago in the community, our hospital would be filled with COVID patients. There's now a disconnect between the number of cases and the number of severe cases, and that's because of both vaccination and because of people taking this antiviral. So that's that's a piece of good news. Well, you just mentioned PCR tests. How do they? Uh, I mean, are they always preferable to take, or to what extent are they preferable to taking an at-home test? I think they're mostly not preferable. Um, it's it, the, the advantage of the PCR is that it's very, very sensitive and will pick up a, a, a minuscule amount of virus in your system. Um, and so if you have been exposed and just really, really want to know, do I have COVID, the PCR will pick it up a few days, a day or two before the home test will. The value of, I found the home test to be more valuable because the home test it just turns out that the amount of virus that turns that little strip positive is 
very, very tightly correlated to the amount of virus that 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 is required before you're infectious. And so if you test negative on that home test, you might still have COVID and you should probably, if you've been exposed or you have symptoms, you should you should test again in a day or two to be safe. But if that if that strip is negative, you almost certainly don't have enough COVID to be infectious. Now, there's a little bit of an exception there on the, you know, you can be infectious the day before that strip turns positive. So if you've had a close exposure or you feel crummy and you have a negative test, still assume you might be positive for another day, get another test. But if that test is positive and you have symptoms, you have COVID, you don't need to confirm it with a PCR. There are very, very few false positives. And at the end of your, your, your episode of COVID, you know, when you're retesting day five, six, seven, eight, the fact that the PCR is positive is irrelevant. The PCR may stay positive for a couple of weeks. It's the, the rapid test. Once it turns negative, you are no longer infectious. So when we think about when you can come out of isolation, it's really the rapid test that we care about. The PCR is actually too sensitive. The other point about the PCR that makes it a little less valuable in many settings, you get a PCR, you don't get it back for two or three days. And so, yes, it's more, it, it's more sensitive, but it's not giving you the answer you need at the time you need it. And by the time you get it back, if it's a couple of days later, probably your rapid test is going to turn out to be positive. So I'm much, I'm much, I think the rapid tests are a more valuable test on average than the PCR is. Talking again with Dr. Robert Wachter, I want to go to uh, at least one or two other questions, time permitting, but what do you, what do people seem most concerned about? You've gotten hundreds of thousands of uh, Twitter inquiries. Uh, is there something that rises to the top in terms of what seems to really motivate people to want to ask about? Uh, kids under five, when are they going to be vaccinated? How safe are they? Um, this new twist is this Paxlovid rebound, which is just head scratching. You know, none of us expected it to happen and trying to figure out what it means and why it's happening and long COVID. I say those are the three that, uh, that you know, this month are the issues du jour. Prior to that, it was, should I get a second booster? A lot of questions about masks and airplanes and things, you know, travel and is it safe? immunosuppressed people. You know, a lot of the questions you've asked me have just come up over and over again over the course of the pandemic, but it seems like each month or so there's sort of a question of the moment. And I'd say those are the ones that, that are that are most commonly on people's mind today. Well, here's a question of the moment from uh, Christina Borer, who wants to know, what is public health's role in mediating the tension between keeping people safe and respecting freedoms or getting the economy back on track? I mean, that's talk a question about big that questions. Is, huh? That's a question that almost answers itself. It's it, it you you have you have defined the tension in public health that 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 public health needs to balance that tension between providing people information and giving people the information they need to be as safe as possible, but periodically needs to have the authority. This is why the uh, the CDC and the federal government are 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 pushing back and 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 uh, litigating that judge's decision to take away the airplane mandate. It wasn't necessarily that it's the wrong thing to do, but to say the CDC doesn't have the authority to make us do things during a public health crisis is profoundly dangerous. Now, I have been a you know huge proponent of mandates uh, all the way through, including vaccine mandates and mask mandates, but I'm not anymore. I think we have reached a point where uh, people have the ability to keep them safe, themselves safe, and the threshold for mandates needs to be very high. I mean, it, it's it, it's a country that prizes freedom, that has a pretty strong libertarian streak, and to say that the risk of COVID is so high now, when the hospitals are not filled with COVID, that there needs to be a mandate that everybody needs to wear a mask. I would prefer that everybody wears a mask. I'm certainly going to wear a mask. I tell people they should wear a mask. But given the fact that I can keep myself pretty much, uh, I'm almost very reassured that I can keep myself safe. You can keep yourself safe. If you've been fully vaccinated, you're wearing a mask, you just, you you decide not to do certain things you might do otherwise. I think the threshold for them to, for the federal government or the state government to mandate that everybody do it, I don't think we quite reach it anymore. And I think if we overuse it, it's it, it then makes it less of a valuable tool. I think we need to be able to calibrate it and say, we're no longer at the threshold for mandates, but we reserve the right to have that threshold. If, if my hospital and the other hospitals are packed with COVID patients and being overwhelmed, I want those mandates to come back and I want people to say, okay, they took it away when it was appropriate, but now 
they're 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 sounding the alarm again. It's time to put the mask back on and make it mandatory. I think that's a power they use need to use carefully. And I think if they overuse it, it will it will the pushback will be ultimately destructive. Of course, a lot of those mandates were pre-vaccine, but looking back uh, in retrospect, was it a mistake? Uh, were some of those mandates a mistake? Uh, you supported them. You said strongly. You feel no, any Yeah. No, I don't think they were. They were a mistake, and you know, some of the uh, a mistake the CDC did make was to uh, to believe that once you were vaccinated, you could not spread the virus. And earlier on, the mistake everybody made was to believe that if you had no symptoms, you could not spread the virus. And so, you know, I mean, remember the early days of the temperature checking and the, you know, what we now know of pandemic theater that we were sort of spending all of our time cleaning surfaces. Turned out those were worthless. Those were not, you know, malicious. And those were, you know, those were well-meaning mistakes born of, we don't know anything about this virus. It's brand new. We're going to sort of extrapolate from what we knew, know about flu or other things. So yeah, mistakes have been made along the way. I think earlier on mandates were absolutely appropriate. And even if there were vaccinations, it was appropriate to have mandates because certainly vaccinated people we now know are fully capable of getting infected. But in the beginning, we didn't know that. So, you know, we've learned as we've gone along, but I think the, the threshold now for mandates has to be pretty high. And to my mind, with a surge of cases, but without hospitals being overwhelmed, I don't think we reach the criteria for mandates in my mind. Reasonable people could disagree with that. But I don't think there's any question that we do reach the criteria to recommend strongly that people be more careful than they might have been a couple of months ago. There's a, a huge amount of virus in the air. What a good balanced way to conclude here. And I thank you so much. Can't thank you enough, in fact, for this maiden voyage of uh, gray matter. Always thank appreciate you. being with you and always appreciate uh, not only the light you bring, but also the wisdom. Well, thank you, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. And it's wonderful to hear your voice uh, in, in a new medium. I look forward to listening to it. Thank you. And thanks to all who joined us for this first Gray Matter. I'm Michael Krasny.